Hello, and thank you for joining me for this teaching from Pennington AG Church. Today, we are beginning a four-week series on emotional and spiritual health, mostly inspired by the book of the same name, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by Peter Scazzaro. If you wanna dive deeper into and explore these at home, I strongly encourage you, buy the book, study it at home. There's multiple versions of it and a phenomenal podcast that Pete Scazzaro still updates every week on emotional and spiritual health. We're gonna dive in today talking about knowing ourselves so that we can know God. You may have grown up in a theological tradition where self is bad, God is good, and so push it away or move on from self, self self-denial. And while being selfless and loving is part of the gospel message, God has made us and called us to be our true and authentic selves. And in order to know God, many of us need to know ourselves first. Christians have held a strong and consistent view of this throughout history. St. Augustine wrote in the fourth century, how can you draw close to God when you are far from your own self? Grant, Lord, that I may know myself, that I may know thee. Meister Eckhart, a Dominican writer from the 13th century, wrote, No one can know God who does not first know himself. And St. Teresa of Avila wrote, In the way of perfection, her book, Almost all problems in the spiritual life stem from a lack of self-knowledge. And so to grow in God, to seek his presence, we first must know ourselves. If you haven't watched our message from last week on reflecting back to move forward, I encourage you to watch that. Today we're going to be building on that about living as fully formed humans, bringing our mind, our heart, our soul, and our strength into the relationship God has made for us, or living fully human. The vast majority of human beings will go to our graves one day, never truly knowing who we are. We unconsciously live someone else's life or someone else's expectations of us. This does painful damage to ourselves, our relationship with God, and ultimately to our relationship with others. A few years ago, 2014, I was young, 29. I was first time being a lead pastor here at the church I get to pastor now. And I was going to do a hospital visitation. I had done dozens of hospital visitations. And in my first couple of years as lead pastor, I had done over a dozen funerals as well. I became well acquainted with grief and death. We had an older congregation when I first came in. So going to a hospital visitation, nothing out of the ordinary for me. And in these first two years of being lead pastor, it was a massive sprint all the time. Fix this, meet here, build this, cast vision, preach, handle, counsel. And I was just doing another one of those activities, was going to be present to a church member in need. I'd been in this hospital dozens of times. As I'm walking down the hallway to visit this elderly woman, I begin to realize I make a right turn. Now I make a left turn. Now I go over the top of where the cafeteria is. I make another right turn, go through double doors, and it quickly begins to dawn on me that I am walking into the exact same hospital room, which was the last moment I had ever spent with my grandfather just two weeks earlier before he died. And all of a sudden it goes from being a routine thing that I've done dozens of times 
to something that's connecting with me and pushing me to a vulnerability I wasn't really ready for. I stop in the hallway, I'm trying to catch my breath a little bit, and I felt the Holy Spirit speak to me in that moment that I had jumped into a lot of the activities of what it means to be a pastor. I had been practicing a lot of the activities of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, and I'd been doing them rigorously and honestly out of a love for Jesus, but I've been doing a bunch of activities, pastoring, preaching, writing, praying, pastoring, preaching, writing, praying, visiting. And in that moment, a flood of emotions came back. Grief over losing my grandfather I was very close to, reflections on the relationship I had been engaged previously and it hadn't worked out. It then did work out, it is my wife now, of the last five years. But in that moment, feeling intensely alone and vulnerable and walking in to do this visitation in the hospital, I had realized I had been doing a lot of work of being a Christian in order to avoid my actual emotional vulnerabilities. And I had been doing the work of Christ to avoid inviting who I am in Christ into the picture. And I felt God speak to me, you can't keep doing it this way. You have to invite me into your emotions. You have to invite me into your vulnerabilities. You have to pause, be vulnerable, and allow me into the deep places of who you are. You're living a half of a life, and I have called you in this walk to live a full life. When we deny our pain, our losses, our feelings year after year after year, we become less and less human. We transform slowly into empty shells with smiley faces painted onto them. And sad to say, much of the church operates this way. How are you? I'm great. I'll shake your hand. Inside I'm hurting, but I'm wearing a smile. When we allow ourselves in our spiritual life in our spiritual communities to express and bear the full weight of our emotions, sadness, depression, fear, anger, and joy, a revolution can be unleashed in our spiritual lives. When I began to do this seven years ago, I soon realized and appreciated the biblical place of feelings and all of who we are into my spiritual life. This is the journey, as Pete Scazzaro calls it, of emotionally healthy spirituality. A commitment to allow ourselves to feel and be fully human. And if you're asking, how does this fit spiritually? I'll tell you, the God we serve is an emotional God. I'll give you a bunch of examples. Genesis 125 and 31. God saw that it was good. God saw that it was very good. He's expressive in creation. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. Genesis 6.6 I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Exodus 20, verse 5 For a long time I have kept silent. I have been quiet and held myself back. But now, like a woman in childbirth, I cry out, I gasp, and I pant. God speaking through Isaiah in Isaiah 42.14 The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he fully accomplishes the purposes of his heart. Jeremiah 30, 24. I have loved you with an everlasting love, and I have drawn you with kindness. Jeremiah 31, verse 3. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point 
of death. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew 26. And lastly, he looked around them in anger and deep distress at their stubborn hearts, and he said to them, stretch out your hand, Mark 3, verse 5. You are made in the image of God, and the God we serve thinks and feels, relates, has emotions all throughout the pages of Scripture. And as we study Scripture, as we draw out the character of God in it, see it as an invitation to be fully yourself. God thinks, you think. God feels, you feel. God creates, you create. Proof of your likeness to God being made in his image is your ability to feel, create, and think. God has called you to be all of yourself in front of all of who he is. Or as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24, writing to the early church in Ephesus, Throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. Now this means 100% that knowing yourself and who you are is crucial to your spiritual life and that your feelings, thoughts, and emotions are important to God and important to your growth in Christ Jesus. But there's also a warning that embracing them and worshiping your emotions can also be dangerous. About 500 years ago, a Spanish saint named Ignatius of Loyola gave us a framework for discipleship. It's this long, complex, beautiful expression of how to grow in your trust of Jesus. But in it, he gives space for emotions and to process your emotions as part of your spiritual journey. And he categorizes them into two categories. He says there's a group that are consolations. Consolations are the feelings that bring joy, peace, the fruit of the Spirit, God's fullness and love. Then there are desolations, that which brings death, turmoil, disquiet, spiritual turbulence. And as John encourages us, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Test your emotions. Invite them into your spiritual presence. Feel them, and they are absolutely 100% true. But they're not always the best guiding point for us. Bring them into your relationship with God and say, God, test my emotions, know fully who I am, and guide me towards that which brings love and peace, and teach me when to repent, confess, and hold over to you that which brings turmoil, anger, and hate. Test your emotions to see if they are bringing you greater fruit or greater brokenness. But all of this requires self-awareness, self-examination, the knowledge of who we are. Knowing yourself so that you can know God, to know when our choices and decisions are acting in desolation, brokenness, or in consolation, wholeness. We're going to look at one story from the Gospels in Jesus' life as a framework to kind of grow and understand who we are. We'll look at Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, and we will examine Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. If you're anything like me, I've read this passage in 
Matthew and Luke and Mark and looked at how God works in Jesus' life about dozens of times in my life. And I have found God speak to me dozens of different truths each time I read it. Today, we're going to look at Luke chapter 4 and see three false selves that Satan offers to Jesus and how Jesus' complete self-awareness of who he is and who God is allows him to walk forward in wholeness. But before we even read the passage, before this story begins, we need to understand what Jesus knows about himself. We will see this in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. Jesus is baptized by the, uh, John the baptizer, and as he rises up out of the water, God declares this over him. This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. In other words, God the Father speaking to Jesus, God the Son, you are lovable, you are good, and it is so good that you exist. Jesus has yet to die on the cross, yet to perform any miracles or heal any sick, to teach crowds of thousands, and it shows that God's value in Jesus is deeply connected with how he feels about who Jesus is rather than what Jesus has accomplished. And I want you to know the same thing is true about you. Your value comes from who you are and not what you have accomplished, done, or not done in your life. You are valuable to your Creator by the very nature of who you are. Christ came to this world because of God's value for you. And for those of us that put on Christ Jesus, that trust Him as Savior, when God sees you, not because of any of your activities, He sees you as good, as lovable, as valuable, and as important in the kingdom of God. This grounds us in who we are before we ever enter into the world itself. You are valuable by your very nature, who you are, not what you do. Jesus enters into the wilderness with full knowledge of who he is, not what he does or will accomplish. Let's read this. Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. Jesus ate nothing all that time and became very hungry. Then the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become a loaf of bread. But Jesus told him, No. The scriptures say people do not live on bread alone. Then the devil took him up and revealed to him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. I will give you the glory of these kingdoms and authority over all of them, the devil said, because they are mine to give to anyone I please. I will give it all to you if you will worship me. Jesus replied, The scriptures say you must worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and he said, If you are the Son of God, jump off, for the scriptures say he will order his angels to protect and guard you, and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, The scriptures also say, You must not test the Lord your God. When the devil had finished tempting Jesus, he left him until the next opportunity came. 
three temptations that Satan offers Jesus and that he offers to us about who we are as people. The first, I am what I do, our performance. Second, I am what I have, our possessions. And third, I am what others think, our popularity. Let's see how Jesus combats all three of these. Let's begin with, I am what I do, our performance. Satan tells Jesus, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become a loaf of bread. If you are the son of God, do something. Perform a miracle. Transform this bread. Feed yourself. Do something spectacular, Jesus, to prove you are who you say you are, to prove you have worth. Apparently, it feels like Jesus has done nothing for 30 years. When you read the scriptures, it feels like we have three years of Jesus performing incredible miracles, teaching incredible truth, and calling out incredible healings. But for 30 years, we have almost no record of what Jesus did. It feels like you can read it as Jesus didn't do anything for 30 years, and then he did a lot in three years. Did Jesus not accomplish anything? He's just beginning his ministry. Is he a loser who hasn't accomplished anything? Nobody believes in him yet. He's hungry. He's out in the desert all alone. Has he made any contribution to the world yet? It is as if Satan is tempting Jesus with the accusation of, you're 30 and you haven't accomplished anything. You say that you're God, but you've not made your mark in this world yet. You haven't taught your sermons yet. You haven't performed your miracles yet. You haven't overcome demons yet. Nobody knows who you are. And I'm challenging you, do something, make something so that your life has worth and others will know who you are. We can ourselves read scripture that way and see that Jesus is significant because of what he does. The miracles he performs, his death on the cross, his resurrection, significant things. But a relationship with Jesus is not about primarily what he has done, but about who he is in his character and his very nature as God embodied in flesh. This is what Satan is tempting Jesus with. Do something more than just who you are. This is a temptation for every single one of us. I am what I do. I need to accomplish more. What have you achieved? How have you demonstrated your usefulness? What do you do? When I was first in ministry, it was a hot cultural time for pastors to make your mark when you're young. For like hundreds of years, it was about making your mark when you were older and you had developed wisdom and processed things theologically and then you would, you would write. But it became about when you're first starting out, make your mark, demonstrate how smart you are, how accomplished you are, publish a book, preach a viral sermon. And I look back now, 15, 16 years, and I see so many of the people I felt making me feel like I hadn't accomplished I see their lives eroding from the inside, losing their faith, falling to scandals, that the character of who they were wasn't as important as the accomplishments of the talent of what they could do. When we don't feel like we accomplish enough and we put our life value into our performance, it creates shame and anger. When we put our value in our performance and what we accomplish, it creates shame and anger. We go one of two ways. We either go inward into depression, I give up. I'm not good enough, I'm not worthy of this, I can't accomplish this, I'm terrible. Or we go into anger. I'm great, but nobody's given me my shot. And all the cards are stacked against me. Every single job I'm at, everyone's an idiot, except for me. 
When you live your whole life and every single person, every single situation is terrible but you, some questions to ask ourselves. When you feel like your life has no value, questions to ask ourselves. Thomas Merton, author and Christian scholar, says this about accomplishment when he is asked to write about it. He says, a few years ago, a man who was compiling a book on success wrote and asked me to contribute a statement of how I got to be such a success. I replied indignantly that I was not able to consider myself a success in any terms that had meaning to me. I swore I had spent my life strenuously avoiding success. If it happened that I once wrote a bestseller, this was pure accident, due to inattention and naivete, and I would take very good care never to do the same thing again. If I had a message to my contemporaries, I said, I would surely encourage them this. Be anything you like, be a bandman, be a drunk of every shape and form, but at all costs avoid one thing, success. I heard no more reply from him, and I am not aware that my reply was published. Craig Rochelle says, nothing fails like success. Our own self-worth and value placed into our performance. I succeeded, thus I am worthy. So, I must continue to succeed and continue to push and continue to climb. Jesus' response to this idea was, Man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's this story in the book of Matthew. And I think it's significant, and he's referring back to Matthew chapter 3 and God's declaration over him, saying to Satan back, I am not worthy because of what I can or will do, to the stone or to make bread or the miracles I will perform, I am worthy because the mouth of God has declared me as worthy. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, God declared me loved and good. He said, I am loved and he is well pleased. He spoke this over me. For those of us struggling with our performance, you are loved because of the nature of who you are and because God has declared it over you. You are lovable. You are worthy and good because of what Christ has done for you. You are covered and God has declared it over you. Don't fall into the trap of our self-value because of our performance. Our self-value comes from what we are declared to be by the mouth of God. Second temptation that Satan offers Jesus is, I am what I have, my possessions. Jesus, you have value because of all the things you can have or do have. He says, I will give you the glory of these kingdoms and the authority over all of them. I'll give you power. I'll give you possessions. I'll give you indulgence. I will give you all the power and possession of this earth. I will give you every streaming service that has ever existed so you can binge yourself into a coma. I will give you access to every food that there is, fried, raw, wrapped in bacon, eat yourself into a heart attack. You want a private rocket that can blast yourself off into a space? I'll give you the biggest, most expensive rocket there is. The very reality is that you don't have enough. And that means you're not enough until you have more and have possessions and have security and have comfort. We measure ourselves in the modern world or the postmodern world by the cute little toys that we can buy and how many moments we can share about them on our social media to garner likes from people we don't even care about. 
any item that is free, including all social media and the apps that are on our phone, means the app is not the product, you're the product. I'm the product. They're trying to sell to us. They're trying to make us believe we need what they are selling, and then they are selling our information to people who sell us the items that they've convinced us we need and want. There is an entire industry that exists to make you think you are not good enough, you are not worthy enough, until you have the next product laid out. Billions of dollars are invested in making you feel insecure about who you are so that you will desire more possessions to fix yourself. We're on a treadmill of who has the best resume, who has the most attractive spouse, who has the most insta-worthy home in order to prove our worth. In the 90s, there's an Oscar-winning movie called Amadeus. It's a story about young Mozart in Vienna, Austria. The story is about the central character of Salieri, a man who had worked his whole life to be a worthy, accomplished composer and had now, late in life, worked his way into the royal palace and would compose songs for all of the royalty. Late in life, having strived and worked, he now hears about a young man with more talent than he could ever hope to possess. A young man that doesn't just write beautiful songs, but composes entire symphonies in his head by his very nature. One of the things they say about Mozart is he went to the Roman palace and he went into Rome and heard a song that had only been performed in the Catholic Church and never outside of it, never written. He heard it at 12 years old, came back to Vienna, wrote the entire piece down, and then performed it from memory. This is what he was able to accomplish by his very nature, and he did it all with a jovial, carefree attitude. Imagine being Salieri, a man who had worked and strived all his life to accomplish something, to possess great skill and influence, and then a young man who seems gifted by God and does it easily. When you watch the film, you see Salieri descend into himself in madness and anger and try to destroy Mozart. At one point he says, I have determined of myself that God loves Mozart and he hates me. There have been shades of this in my own life. I can relate to Salieri more than I'd like to admit. That I've worked and strived, but someone else, it seems to be so easy. That I've clawed to get here, but someone else just seems to have more and it just came to them naturally. God, why is it so easy for them and so hard for me? Why do I have so much less than they have? It is not about working our way up, but it is about finding our self-worth, not in our possessions, our talents, our accomplishments, but in the words of God to Jesus that Jesus then gives to us. You are my son, Brian, whom I love. In you, I am well pleased. Jesus' response to the temptation of possessions is, I have learned to appreciate God in all things. I have learned to worship God and worship him only. A life of worship is not about an appreciation for elevation worship music. It is not about enjoying most of all and most passionately the songs we sing on a Sunday. That is a small, small part of it. A heart of worship that Jesus says is about appreciating the goodness of God and seeing him in the goodness of all he has created. Learning to live my life from a life of appreciation 
and joy and all that I get to see it as a gift. I have the breath of air in my lungs. I have the joy of relationships in my life. I have the love of God in my very nature and his creation. I know who I am and I am made to appreciate what he has given me. Third and final temptation. I am what others think. Popularity. Some of us are addicted to what others think of us. This is a huge weakness for me. I very much like to be liked, and it has stood in the way of me being a better pastor or at peace with who I am in Christ. Satan tempts Jesus with this. If you are the Son of God, jump off! For the scriptures say he will order his angels to protect and guard you. Satan invites Jesus to leap off and demonstrate that God has value to you. His angels will protect you. He'll he'll prove it to you by saving you. Others will see God save you in this dramatic act and people will love you and respect you. You will have popularity. Most of us place such a high value on what others think. I am a classic oversharer. And my wife has pointed out to me that I do this because I want people to like me. So I'm sharing stories to see how they respond. Even new members of the church, sometimes I'm talking to them and I just hear myself going and going. And recently I'm talking to someone who came in about the college they're from. Like, yeah, I've known people from that college. and Some have been great and some have been a little bit of a struggle and we're trying to see how God works through them, but it's great. And yeah, I love the school, but I have mixed feelings about it. And I can hear in my head the words of my wife yelling, stop talking, stop it. Why, why are you doing this? This isn't helping. And I literally am hearing her words in my head as my mouth is still spilling these out because I'm insecure and I want this person to like me. This is what we do. We want the popularity of others to give our lives meaning and value. My life has meaning based on how many people like me. M. Scott Peck author writes it like this. He shares a story about his own interaction and how badly he wants to impress others. He's reflecting back on a relationship and a conversation he had. He says, I suddenly realized that for the entire 10 minute period from when I had first seen my acquaintance until that very moment, I had been totally self-preoccupied. For the two or three minutes before we met, all I was thinking about was clever things I might say that would impress him. During our five minutes together, I was listening to what he had to say only so that I might turn it into a clever rejoiner. I watched him only so that I might see what effects my remarks were having on him. And for the two or three minutes after we separated, my sole thought content was those things I could have said that might have impressed him even more. I had not cared a whit for my classmate that I had met again that day. We do this. Our lives are fixed around what can I say that will impress someone? And as we're talking to them, am I impressing them? And then afterwards, as we're driving home, I could have said this to impress them better. Rather than living in the comfortability of who we are so that we can love others fully. We remain trapped living a pretend life out of an unhealthy concern for what others think of us. Rather than leaning into what we should already know of what God thinks of us. Trusting in his declarations that he loves us, he likes us, he wants to be with us, that through Jesus he sees us as perfect and good. This is such the demonstration of Jesus fully self-aware and comfortable in who he was and is. 
his response back to Satan. You must not test the Lord your God. Trust is about the confidence that who God said I am is who I know God to be. I don't need to ask God to prove his love for me again and again and again. If he doesn't respond to my prayer this time, does he really love me? If he doesn't show up in this situation, is he still faithful? If he's moving here in this relationship, can I still see him as loving and good? Jesus has the confidence that who God says he is, is who he is. And who God has declared Jesus to be is who Jesus is. And he can walk in that confidence and says, I don't need to test God to prove his love for me again. I don't need to constantly set up traps where I can see if God is a good father or is not. He said he has value in me. I trust that value in my life. This is such an incredibly cathartic, emotional realization to get to. Some of us are stuck in a loop of self-worth. And we're using scriptures like mantras to try and prove that God does love or care for us rather than in comfortability and peace, leaning into what God says about us is true and quieting our souls to realize that God's love for us is enough. Getting to our core requires following God into the unknown the unknown of who we are, delving deep into wounds from our family and our childhood, what our father said about us or what our mother taught us that might not be healthy for who we are, might delve into relationships and brokenness from over a decade ago or things we have allowed into ourselves that brought true brokenness and shame. It's inviting God into the deepest parts of ourselves to know and to hear him say, I see that part of you and I still value you and love you. Now turn it over to me. God invites us to remove false layers of self that we wear over our authentic self to awaken our true self that he has planted in us. The path we walk to this is very hard. It's a lot of self-realization, examining our own sin and hurt, looking back on things we've been taught, learning to turn from it and embrace God's call in our life. But at the same time, we know that the God of the universe has chose to make his home in us. John 14, 23. The very glory of God that is in Jesus has been given to us. John 17. The Holy Spirit exists to empower us that we might break free to live in our true selves. We must do the hard work of rejecting our false self of performance, what I do, possessions, what I have, and popularity, what others think, in order to lean into our true self of who God says that we are. There are steps we can do for finding our true authentic self. I'll give you just four quick ones. First, pay attention to your interior self in silence and solitude. If you live in chaos and are binge watching and podcasts and music, take moments to disconnect in silence and solitude. You will find one of your fears is very real. In silence and solitude, the worst parts of your fears are going to rise up. The anxieties you have about yourself will come to the surface. That must happen so that they can be felt, owned, and released into Jesus. Second. Find true, trusted companions. Find people that you can trust in this journey. You've probably been hurt before. You're going to be hurt again. Find people that you can trust 
in the church, find other followers of Jesus that you can walk alongside of and choose to trust them. Make the choice to enter in. Three, move out of your comfort zone. Do things that make you uncomfortable. You avoid confrontation, be honest and bold. You like to dominate, that's how you protect yourself. Quiet yourself down. Take steps that make you uncomfortable. And fourth and final, all throughout it, pray for courage. Pray for courage that you can do the hard work of exposing your true self and that you have the courage to trust that God will see you and love you on the other side of it. And I believe that you will find on the other side of exposing your authentic self freedom and peace like you have never experienced before. God has called us to know ourselves that we may know him. I want to close with just last scripture. Jesus encourages us in Mark chapter 12, verse 3, to be fully ourselves. We do this like this. Love the Lord God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and all of your strength. As we worship and pursue God, let's bring all of ourselves into the picture. Our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength. Bring it all before him that we may know ourselves so that we may know God. You may be watching this sermon today and you may not have a relationship with God or know Jesus personally. I want to give you a chance today to take a first step of knowing him, of confessing him and your trust in Jesus. If you'll pray this prayer with me, if you already know Jesus, use this as an opportunity to recommit and to continue to walk forward in that faith. Jesus, in this moment, I see you authentically yourself, so comfortable in who you are as God and as man. And Jesus, I want what you have. I want that declaration that God has spoke over you of being loved and being pleased in who you are. And Jesus, I believe you came to this earth as God. You lived for 33 years and demonstrated a life of love and character. You went to the cross in my place. You died for my sin and shame. You were buried in the ground. And on the third day, you rose from the grave, leaving death and sin in the grave. Resurrected to glory, you now sit at the right hand of the Father. Jesus, I believe you gave your life for me. Today, I commit my life to know you, follow you, and trust in your provision, power, and character. May I know you and put on your character as my authentic self. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining me for this teaching from Pennington AG Church. I invite you to continue this journey with Pennington AG as we, this fall, pursue healing emotionally, spiritually, and relationally. Thank you for joining me.